Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Today's case begins in an area of Cardiff in Wales previously known as Tiger Bay. It was the Docklands part of Cardiff where an influx of sailors created a completely multicultural community with over 50 nationalities. But it was also notoriously known for its darker, more dangerous side. Brawling sailors, prostitution and illegal gambling. And in 1988, it was where the mutilated body of a 20-year-old woman named Lynette White, who had been stabbed over 60 times, was found. And where the biggest miscarriage of the British justice system would take place. Buckle up, guys, because this is one crazy ride. Hey, Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan. Born in 1967, Lynette White had left school without any qualifications and had been working as a prostitute since the age of 14. Really interestingly, only a few weeks before her murder, she'd actually been interviewed by a journalist for the BBC who was filming a documentary about child prostitution. And she was like the A-list celebrity of her area. Described as pretty and popular, she'd be the first girl out to work and the last one back in the evening. She was bringing in about £100 a night, which for the 80s was actually quite a lot of money. So in this BBC interview, she explained that around the age of 14, she'd been drugged and taken to Bristol by a gang of men who essentially had sex trafficked her. She was trapped in a continual spiral of prostitution, even after being able to escape Bristol and make her way back to Cardiff. Now, you might be wondering how on earth does a 14-year-old get drugged and taken to Bristol and, you know, police aren't looking for her and things like that. She had had a very tumultuous childhood, except for a little section when she lived with her grandmother. 
But tragically, when she was 12, her grandmother died and it went back to a very tumultuous childhood and her parents were just not around. I couldn't find out a great deal about them, but they just weren't around enough for her to go off with a gang of men and it not be a problem, shall we say. So in 1998, she was now dating her pimp, Stephen Miller, known by his nickname Pineapple. And that was because he had dreadlocks and he would tie them up at the top of his head, making it look like a pineapple stalk. He was essentially just sending her out to fund his cocaine habit. Out of the £100 a day that she would make, he would take between £60 and £90 of it. She was utterly trapped. He would drive her in the mornings to her spot and then pick her up again at night, taking her back to the flat that they shared in the city. Except for the five days before her murder, she literally disappeared off the face of the earth. No one knew why or where. Now, in my research, every source says that they've never actually been able to get to the bottom of her disappearance. One possible explanation that she was due to be a key witness in two upcoming trials. One where the defendant was accused of attempted murder, and another, with a completely different defendant, accused of attempting to pay a 13-year-old prostitute for her services. She was due in court on February the 15th, so it was assumed that she didn't want to testify, so was just laying low, basically. And later down the line, as we get further into the case, Stephen would go on record saying that they had rowed and she had just simply not come home. A warrant had been issued for her arrest and police were actively looking for her. And on February the 14th, the day before the first court case, they did find her. Earlier in the month, a friend and fellow prostitute had loaned Lynette the keys to a flat that she used so that she could bring clients somewhere indoors. It was the only set of keys, so when Lynette disappeared, her friend couldn't get inside. Finally, on the night of the 14th of February, Leanne, who was this friend, had had enough and went to police. She'd initially gotten a mutual friend of both of the women to try and help her get in, but when they couldn't, she felt she had no choice. Police officers accompanied Leanne back to the flat, expecting to force entry and arrest Lynette, ready for her court appearance the next day. Instead, after forcing their way in, they found Lynette laying on her back on the floor of the bedroom with massive injuries. Her throat had been cut from the right ear across the front and around the left side of the neck exposing the bones of her spine. I mean, essentially, she'd been decapitated. Her head was still on, but barely. There were multiple stab wounds to her chest and breasts, and other wounds to her face, her stomach, her arms, her wrists, her inner thighs, as well as defensive wounds on her hands. She was, though, fully clothed except for one shoe. Blood stained the base of the bed, the carpet and the walls, and an opened but unused condom was also found next to her body. So began an investigation which would leave a wake of devastation in its path and leave this case as being historically the worst miscarriage of justice ever to happen in a murder trial. Four witnesses came forward immediately to say that they had seen a pale, brown-haired man shaking with a bloodied hand standing right outside the property not long after the murder, crying and babbling to himself. So, the Detective Chief Superintendent of the CID at the time went on Crime Watch saying that the suspect had dark brown, 
greasy hair with a slightly lighter patch towards the front of it. He was about 35 to 40 years of age and between 5 foot 8 and 6 foot tall. They even issued an e-fit of the man and plastered it all over the media. All of those pictures will be available in our Facebook group. So the man police were hunting for was distinctive and he was also white. This is going to be important later, I promise you. Obviously, the first suspects were the people that Lynette was due to testify against. Obviously, they had found a blood droplet on one of Lynette's socks. So it was the sock that the shoe had been missing from. And it wasn't hers, but the killer's. And that blood droplet ruled those people out. Next on the list was Stephen Miller, Lynette's pimp and boyfriend. His clothes were so dirty when the police brought him in that they even joked that he needed to sit in the corner of the room because he stank so badly. And he was ruled out as there was no blood on his clothes and his blood type didn't match the droplet on the sock. Plus, he had an alibi. Now, at the start, the police really did do their due diligence, checking alibis, DNA and legitimately ruling people out until after 10 long months the case was no closer to being solved. All of a sudden, alibis meant nothing to the police. They needed this off their desks and marked as closed. So we know the main suspect was white, based on the eyewitnesses' descriptions and the e-fit that the police had issued. But by the end of 1988, police had arrested Five black and mixed race men, despite there being zero scientific evidence linking them to her death. But let's backtrack a little. So Lynette is murdered in February and those initial suspects are ruled out, right? In April, police put together a list of possible suspects based on their previous criminal history. So nothing to do with whether they knew Lynette or not, just based on their previous criminal history. The first on the list is a man who was only ever referred to as Mr. X. His details were never made public. All we know is that he was a convicted sex offender and a paedophile who lived about 20 minutes from the scene of the murder and was known for using prostitutes. So in his interview with police, he admits that yes, he'd used Lynette's services in the past. He didn't have an alibi for that night and his blood type matched the blood type on Lynette's sock. Bingo. This is looking like they have found their guy. So while they waited for the final DNA results to come back, they put Mr. X under surveillance. They were convinced it was him. But the DNA results come back and it wasn't him. And this is where the case now goes in the most unbelievable direction. Like honestly, just shockingly unbelievable. There's actually been a three-part series documentary called A Killing in Tiger Bay, which I really definitely recommend you watch. You will just be shocked to your core. And honestly, there is so much to this case that I can't even begin to unpack it all. So definitely go and give it a watch. So the police, like I said earlier, want this case off their desk. Two officers with reputations for getting results, Detective Inspector Graham Muncher and Inspector Tommy Page, are pulled in to rescue the investigation. So they begin constructing a case. And by constructing, I mean making stuff up and bullying people into confessions. 
The first confession they coerce is from two black men who live in the flat above where Lynette was found. So I just want to remind you, race is only being mentioned in this because remember, the suspect seen leaving the scene, covered in blood, was white. And it was only one man. They're now looking at these two black men. Both men have alibis, but equally, both of them were very vulnerable mentally and had been in trouble with the police for petty crimes. Their names were Paul Atkins and Mark Gromick. I warn you, I legitimately needed pen and paper to write these names down because it is about to get confusing, trust me. Okay, so Paul and Mark are brought in and through intimidation, cajoling, etc., Paul says that Mark did it, then says, actually, no, I did it. By the end of the interviews, they have both given four different accounts of how and which one of them did it that Police, honestly, have no choice but not to take any of it seriously. Next on the list is Yusuf Abdullahi, a sailor that at the time of the murder had been working on board a docked ship eight miles away. Solid alibi, right? But what he didn't realise was that his partner, a woman named Jackie Harris, was having an affair with a man named Jeff Smith, who just so happened to be a police officer. Not only that, but Jackie's brother, Ronnie, was a police informant. Ronnie also hated Yusuf, and I think the feeling was pretty mutual. So Lynette's murder was the perfect opportunity for Ronnie to go to town in trying to implicate Yusuf. First, he told police that Yusuf knew who the killer was, but was concealing the information. Then he started just throwing him directly under the bus, saying that actually it was Yusuf. He'd snuck off the ship on the night of the murder without his shipmates being aware. A statement was taken from Yusuf, who said he was at work and was seen by all of his colleagues, and 13 of those colleagues backed up that alibi. Police wanted Yusuf to be good for it, though. But they did need more than just Ronnie say-so. So they began leaning hard on Leanne. So remember, Leanne is the friend whose flat Lynette was murdered in. They visited Leanne daily, I mean daily, to the point where her roommate kicked her out. So she moved in with a couple of other friends who before long were also complaining about the same thing. They were sick of the police banging on the door every single day. Leanne was a lesbian, a drug addict and a prostitute and the police used all of that to their advantage. They kept pushing the idea that it was Yusuf and Lynette's boyfriend, Stephen Miller, who committed the crime. And they were relentless. One evening, drunk and hanging out with her friends, they all got talking about the murder, and she said to her group of friends that Yusuf and Stephen had done it. One of the girls immediately told a police officer, And when Leanne was questioned the next day, she said it was just drunk ramblings and that they were just the names given to her earlier in the day by another policeman who'd come to the house. But they didn't care. Only problem is, the police had been told that the suspect was white. So how can they say suddenly, oh sorry, it wasn't one white man, it was actually two black men. They realised they couldn't. So they start pouring over the thousands of statements through interviews and door-to-door inquiries that had taken place just after Lynette's murder. And they hit the jackpot. A statement made by a woman named Violet. Way back at the start of the investigation, she'd given a statement to police that said on her way home from work around 1.30am on the night of the murder, she'd driven past the flat and had seen four black men outside arguing. 
She had recognised two of the men. Their names were John Acti and Rashid Omar. Perfect. They could use this statement to fit their narrative. Oh, except she said four black men. And Leanne's statement only said two black men that they could pin it on. So, armed with Violet's statement, they go and speak to Leanne's friend and ex-roommate, Angela. I wasn't joking when I said you'd need pen and paper. It really does get confusing. So Angela lived in the flat opposite to the one that Lynette was murdered in, with a completely unrestricted view of the comings and goings. Except Angela was well known in the area as being one of Cardiff's most mentally vulnerable people. She had an IQ of 55 with a formal diagnosis of mild mental retardation. Okay, these aren't my words. This was the official diagnosis, which let's not forget was in the 80s when political correctness just didn't exist. So they go full force at Angela, basically saying that she had something to do with the crime because her blood type was the same as the droplet found on the sock. Hours of bullying and accusations go by and eventually Angela conveniently goes on record saying that she saw five black men outside the flat that night. There was honestly so much information for me to sift through in this case that somewhere, somehow, they decided to add a fifth man into the mix and I honestly couldn't find out why or how they added him to that list. So this fifth man is the cousin of one of the men that Violet named, who also happened to be Leanne's boyfriend, Ronnie. Congrats if you are keeping up, by the way. Angela says that she sees five men and not only that, but she'd heard screaming coming from the flat that Lynette was in and then saw Ronnie, so this is that fifth guy, talking up to someone in a window around Lynette's flat vicinity. The documentary I mentioned earlier, A Killer in Tiger Bay, actually did a reconstruction of the supposed scream using an actress in the flat that Lynette was in and then sensitive sound recording equipment in the flat that Angela had lived in at the time. And even with zero background noise, the screams were barely audible. So now they've got Violet's statement and Angela's, they decide to go back and pay Paul and Mark a visit again the two men who lived above where Lynette was killed. And wouldn't you know it, they make a brand new statement saying, oh yeah, 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 we saw five black men too. And yeah, we also heard screaming. I mean, wow, what a coincidence, hey? The police know that just seeing five men outside is not enough for a conviction. So back to Angela they go, who says that, oh, she was with Leanne when she heard the screams. Back to Leanne, the police go. And guess what? Leanne now adds to her original statement saying, oh yes, I was with Angela and yes, I heard the screams. But not only that, I went to the flat with Angela after hearing those screams. We walked in and saw Lynette and in the room with her was Stephen Miller, Yusuf Abdullahi, Ronnie Akti, Tony Miller, who was Stephen Miller's brother, and another mixed race man. They were assaulting her, they murdered her, but made Angela and Leanne take part, allegedly to stop them from talking as they'd implicate themselves if they did go to police. Honestly, this is just wild, and I I really do congratulate you if you're keeping up, because I struggled, I really struggled trying to keep everybody in their correct place. So don't worry, I'm confused too. After getting these new versions of events from Angela and Leanne, 
The police then put them into protective custody. And frankly, that's just not surprising considering they had literally just lied through their teeth about these five men. On December 7th, 1988, 10 months after that fateful night, police arrested all five of the men Leanne and Angela had implicated. So just to get this straight in our minds, okay, we've gone from on the night of the murder, a lone white male covered in blood being seen to now five black or mixed race men being arrested, none of whom have been matched to any forensic evidence found at the scene. The police's big break, though, comes in the form of Stephen Miller. Over a period of four days, Stephen Miller was interviewed on 19 occasions for a total of 13 hours. He was even denied access to a lawyer for the first two interviews. Now, he was in his early 20s, but he had the mental age of 11 and couldn't even read. He was intimidated, threatened, and faced with the good cop, bad cop routine until he cracked. And he did crack. He confessed to the killing after making 307 denials. And he said he'd done it with the other four men in custody. The bigoted police officers, because that's what they were. They were completely and utterly riddled with racism. They were desperate to get a result and had gotten what they'd set out to do. Case closed. The police officer playing the good cop created a fictional horror scene and by gradual suggestion and essentially psychological manipulation, he got a distressed and mentally exhausted Stephen Miller to repeat the bizarre made-up scenario. You can hear in the tapes just how worn down Stephen sounds. But this made-up scenario is the only scenario that police could make up that would place the five men in the room with Lynette and account for the savage nature of the killings. And savages is exactly how the police wanted to portray these men. As animals and savages from Tiger Bay who richly murdered a white girl. The media dubbed them the Cardiff Five and a trial date was set. The bigoted corruption didn't quite end there though. Cardiff was too multicultural for the police's liking, so they made sure that the trial would take place in Swansea, which almost guaranteed a fully white jury, and a fully white jury is what they got. The jury heard that the five accused men had killed Lynette to make an example of her over a drug debt. The police presented a scenario in which all five men had somehow come together and made their way to the flat where they took it in turns to stab her to death. Leanne, Angela, Paul and Mark all testified. Not surprisingly, their evidence was as flimsy as you can imagine it to be. But that's what happens when it's a bunch of bull, right? Their testimony was filled with contradictions, lies and discrepancies and so chaotic that it wasn't clear whatsoever who was actually even at the murder scene. Then, suddenly, 82 days into the trial, the judge suddenly died of a heart attack. The case was put on hold and didn't start again for another three months. Eight more months of testimony went on, making it one of the longest trials to have ever taken place up to that date. And in 1990, Stephen Miller was the first to be found guilty, followed by Tony Paris and Yusuf Abdullahi. The three of them were all sentenced to life. Ronnie and John Acti were found not guilty. They'd already served two years because all five men had been held without bail. 
But unlike the other three, that day they walked away free men. The Cardiff Five were now the Cardiff Three. The jury were exhausted and confused and allegedly most of them were crying as the verdicts were read out. Yes, they had made the decision, but after a trial that long and that confusing, I honestly just think they didn't know what was what anymore. Almost immediately after the sentences were issued, the Free the Cardiff Three campaign was set up by Lloyd Paris, who was Tony's brother, and Malik Abdullahi, who was Yusuf's brother. Campaigners went through all two and a half thousand statements, and in them they found racist elements to the case, as well as 23,000 pages of unused material and 22 statements that never got read out in court. 19 of those were alibis for Tony. Besides Stephen Miller's confession, everything else was hearsay and uncooperated evidence. That began their long journey from the Crown Court to the Court of Appeal. Hundreds of people from the area took part in a protest march all the way to Cardiff Prison in the city centre, and it was even attended by the legendary American Baptist minister and black rights activist, the Reverend Al Sharpton. He would be pivotal in getting the case seen and heard by the media, and opening the case up to the rest of the country and the rest of the world. In 1992, the BBC aired a documentary highlighting the allegations made by the campaigners that the investigation was basically nothing but flawed. And finally, after two years, an appeal was granted. During that appeal hearing, the taped interviews with Stephen Miller showed the jury exactly the extent of the hostile and intimidating tactic of the police officers. And the appeal lawyer argued that the so-called confession should never have been accepted into evidence. It wasn't a search for the truth, but instead an attempt to achieve by any means possible a confession to match Leanne and Angela's statements. All three men had their convictions overturned and were released. They'd all served four years. Tragically, Tony's dad never got to see his son freed. He died literally just weeks before. Out of the five men, only two are still alive. Ronnie was found dead in his garden in 2007. No suspicious circumstances were uncovered. Four years later, at the age of 49, Yusuf, who had been treated for PTSD after his release and had spent a few months in a psychiatric hospital, died from a burst ulcer. And last year, in 2022, Tony Paris died at the age of 65. None of those five men ever lived a normal life again. Lynette's murder changed their lives forever. In fact, Stephen Miller moved to London and has never set foot back in Cardiff. As tragic as all of this is, Lynette was murdered by someone. And that someone was walking free, literally having gotten away with murder. As for the police, they issued a statement saying the three men had been released on a technicality and not only would the officers involved not be investigated, but they wouldn't be reopening the case, which would be true right up until September 2000, the start of the beginning of the end for the real killer who'd been in the wind for over 12 years. This would finally see him being found by complete and utter chance. In next week's episode, we'll delve into how the justice that Lynette deserved was finally served, who the killer was, why he killed Lynette, and how he'd gone undetected for so long. We'll also take a look into the long overdue reinvestigation into those police officers' misconduct and the trial that followed, 
and also the trial of the four key witnesses, Leanne, Angela, Paul and Mark, who were all charged with perjury. Thanks for listening. To see today's case photos, click on the link in the case description to join the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group. And if you're enjoying being here, please leave a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Until next week, stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.